0: Some of you may remember the um, place in the wedding ceremony when the uh, person who was officiating would, uh, would say, If someone can show just cause why these two should not be joined together, let him now speak or forever hold his peace. Now, I haven't heard that phrase for a long time. I don't use it in my own uh, ceremony. And uh, I haven't heard it recently. But I can remember as a child always waiting for that place in the ceremony and uh, in the secret of my mind wishing that someone would stand up and challenge the marriage. That shows how perverse I was as a child and probably explains a lot of things about me. But um, I always wondered at what uh, consternation that that would produce. Fortunately, that sort of thing never happened. But I'd like to have you imagine in your mind what it would be like to uh, be attending a wedding ceremony and having some beautiful, young, attractively dressed, stylishly uh, coiffured woman stand and point to the groom and say to the bride, "Yes, I uh, I challenge this union. The uh, the groom is not who he claims to be. He's unfaithful. He's untrue. He's a liar. He can't be trusted." He's simply out to uh, cramp your, your style and limit your freedoms and frustrate you and thwart you at, at every turn. And the, uh, the bride would turn to the woman and say, No, that's not true. I know this man. I've known him for years. And he has demonstrated his faithfulness and his truthfulness. He's someone that I can rely upon. He's always met my needs. I know he loves me even though I've not always responded in a, in a loving way. And uh, furthermore, uh, that woman is the liar. She's a notorious harlot around town, and uh, she has no right to speak against my, my groom. And at that point, six burly uh, ushers would uh, move in and pick the young lady up and usher her out the back door and evict her and tell her to never come back because the uh, wedding... Uh, was going to uh, take place. Now that, in in some sense, is what is described for us here in Revelation 19. And I'd like to have you turn to that chapter, Revelation 19, and we'll read the first ten verses. John writes, After these things I heard as it were a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who, has corru- who, has, who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, this is a stirring uh, section. It's a great hallelujah chorus. The uh, term hallelujah occurs four times in the uh, in these ten verses. Unfortunately, our English transliteration, uh, hallelujah, is a re- rather mild and meek uh, translation of the original. You know, I'm sure, that our word, hallelujah, is simply an anglicized form of two Hebrew words, hallel. That means to shout ecstatically or to leap with praise, and yah, which is the shortened form of Yahweh. So it means to shout ecstatically about God, to leap on your feet and jump in the air and lead a cheer for God. And uh, somehow our, our word hallelujah is somewhat, uh, somewhat tamer. But the Hebrew word has that, has that idea. Now, the cheers are led for God for two reasons. First, because the harlot has been banished. She has been judged. And because the bride is now meeting her her spouse, the groom. And the first five verses uh, describe the eviction and judgment of the harlot. And verses 6 through 10, the wedding feast of the lamb. Now, we know who these two young women are. The harlot is described in chapter 18 as the world. The bride is the church of Jesus Christ, those who belong to Him, those who are devoted to Him, who love Him with all of their hearts. When we talk about the church, we're not talking about a building or an organization, but a people who love their, their, their Lord with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind. And He likewise is devoted to them. Now, the harlot, as we saw in chapter 18, is also described as Babylon, mystery Babylon. And uh, she is described as a harlot because she's trying to seduce the bride away from her loyal, lawful spouse. The harlot is the world. Not the world of things, but people, a community of flesh-governed people. It's people who live life without God who feel that they don't need God to be a man or a woman. That's what the world is. And it always looks good on the outside and uh, very alluring and attractive, but uh, inside it's hollow and empty. I was interested in hearing Mar- uh, reading Margaret Thatcher's words this past week about the violence in Britain. Her comment was that civilization is like a thin veneer, can be very easily scratched, and uh, there are awful things under the surface. And that's a good description of the world. Looks good on the surface. Looks attractive and appealing. It's one uh, option in life that seems to hold out a great deal of promise, but uh, basically it's empty. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, delightful little children's novel, *The Silver Chair*, uh, describes uh, Prince uh, Rillian's seduction by the woman in green. He meets a, a beautiful young lady dressed in green and falls head over heels in love with her, and. Uh, just uh, goes mad as the whole world, uh, all of Narnia, uh, is at this time. And uh, Jill and Eustace, uh, Eustace go to uh, save her, meet Aslan. Aslan tells them to remember the words of Aslan because the air gets thick in Narnia, and they forget. And sure enough, when Jill and Eustace go after Prince Rilian, they discover that they've forgotten the words of, of uh, Aslan, the lion, who is the image of the symbol of Christ in these children's books. And uh, when they meet uh, Prince Rillian, they discover that he is completely out of his mind, head over heels in love with this girl. Uh, and, uh, but there are times when he goes completely mad. Uh, at least that's the perspective of the world around him. And they have to tie him in a chair during these times of madness to restrain him. But the children discover that in this hour of madness, he clearly perceives who the woman is. She is in reality the witch. The whole world thinks he's crazy. But because the children remember the words of Aslan at this crisis time, they know that he is, in fact, speaking the truth. Now, that's the problem with the world. It always looks so good. It's a very attractive and appealing option in life. But it always leads to emptiness and meaninglessness and this existential death that we talked about last uh, last week. And the problem is that we as Christians get caught up in it. We start believing it. And we think that uh, a bigger house or another car or nicer clothes or something is going to satisfy us and take away the ache in our heart. James has an interesting uh, analysis of worldliness in chapter 4. He raises the question, what uh, what causes conflict among you? Why do we have problems getting along as husbands and wives and and labor and management and neighbors. Why can't we get along? On a small scale, a domestic scale, on a national scale, international scale, why can't we live at peace with one another? That's a question that the United Nations has raised in their charter. They uh, state that the United Nations was established in order to find and eradicate the root causes of war. So that's a good question. What causes war? James says, the thing that causes war... Is your passions that are running rampant in your soul? And the word for passions that he uses is simply the word for pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure at all costs. Uh, it's uh, it, the, the the word hedonism. Our word hedonism comes from the Greek word that's translated pleasure. You know what a hedonist is? A hedonist is someone who believes that the highest principle of life is pleasure. That's what you seek at all costs. And James says that when we begin to pursue pleasure without uh, reference to anyone else, then we, uh, we're a hedonist. Um, years ago, when Joshua was about two or three years old, he was sitting on a, a friend's lap, young philosopher friend of ours, who was reading out of uh, one of Richard Scarry's books or a little golden book or something, and Carolyn and I were in the kitchen listening to him read to Josh. And uh, he read a phrase out loud, fun is good and good is fun. And there was a moment of silence and Jack said, Joshua, that's hedonism. And uh, Joshua, who was, as I say, about two, didn't really appreciate that philosophical breakthrough, but uh, it really was quite an insight because uh, that's exactly what hedonism is. If we believe as an all-pervasive principle of life that good is fun, in other words, fun is the good thing in life, then we're hedonists. And while we would reject hedonism as a lifestyle, we could fall into it so easily and create all sorts of problems in our homes, in our relationships, within the family, our neighbors. For example, all of us every once in a while have some discretionary money that we don't know what to do with. After all the bills are paid, perhaps you've had a windfall, a tax rebate or something, and you have four or $500 that lands in your hands. What are you going to do with it? Well, Dad wants to buy a new shotgun. What's wrong with that? The old one is barrels bent. goes that way. <laughs> and uh, Mom uh, wants to buy uh, some curtains for the living room. What's wrong with that? Not a thing. But uh, if we ruthlessly pursue... The pleasure that we desire, whether it's drapes or shotguns, there's going to be a war. World War Three, nuclear warfare, or at least a cold war. <laughs> you can expect that to happen. That's what causes war. Now, James says, you have not because you ask not. The problem is we want things when we want them, as we want them, and we don't take God into account. We just want it now. And we're going to pursue that good. Nothing wrong with the good. But we're going to pursue it ruthlessly without respect to the people around us. And that's what creates conflict. James says you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask selfishly. Adulterous, he says, you've become a friend of the world. Because, you see, that's the way the world goes about getting their needs met. You want something? Go get it. You have a need? Acquire it. Whatever the thing is. And we Christians so easily fall into that. And myself included. So easy to just go about getting things, perfectly good and legitimate things, the world's way, and we have become worldly. We have aligned ourselves, or perhaps more true to the to the analogy, we are lying with the harlot. And we've bought the lie. See? Now the problem with that sort of activity is it leaves us empty. It always does. You get what you want, but then you don't want what you have. And it leaves us empty and vacuous. The whole thing is meaningless. We don't want it any longer. God wants to spare us from the hurt and the pain that comes from doing things the world's way. Uh, There is a book that was just reviewed this past week in Time magazine by Richard Lyman. The Shadow Man the story of Dashiell Hammett. You remember Dashiell Hammett? He, you have to go way back for this one. Back in the 30s and the 40s, he was a detective. He wrote detective stories. As the uh, review put it, every other detective today is cloned from uh, Hammett's Thin Man series. He wrote The Thin Man back in 1937, uh, netted a million dollars from uh, the rights of that. Uh, that book, And that's back when a million dollars was a lot of money. And he lived in the fast lane all of his life. And Lyman uh, wrote his biography. And there was an excerpt in Time magazine, as there so often is, that I, I, want, I want to read to you. By 1947, he, that is Dashiell Hammett, had all but given up attempts to regenerate his writing career, and he complained to an acquaintance that most days he saw no reason to get up at all. Though he enjoyed solitude at other times, Hammett craved the sense of camaraderie that alcohol gives. Just after he returned to New York, he learned that a woman who had served in the USO on on ADAC was living in Manhattan. That's where he had uh, served his uh, time in the military. He asked her out for dinner and night clubbing. They began the evening in Midtown and drank their way to Harlem. As Hammett got drunker, he became louder, ruder, and more talkative. Finally, at nearly five in the morning, his date had, had enough. And she asked him to call her a cab so she could go home. When he refused, she hailed a cab herself. As she was entering the cab, Hammett begged her, Please, don't leave me alone. And that's a good illustration of what happens when we, when we believe the lie. And the Lord wants to spare us. We all at times fall prey to the big lie that we can make it without God or we can make it apart from God's way. But the result is always leanness of, of soul. As the psalm puts it, God gives us our request. He lets us have our way. He loves us enough that He'll let us go the way of, of the world. But we always hurt. And God wants to spare us. And He promises that though we will struggle now, there is victory now, and there is an ultimate victory coming when once for all he will evict the harlot. And one of these days we won't have to struggle anymore. That's the time that he describes as the great wedding feast, the time when we gather around the table with the Lord and the marriage of the lamb takes place. When I was a kid, I always used to they used to puzzle me. I, I couldn't understand how the Lord could feed all those people) And I envisioned in my mind a table, miles long. And uh, way off in the distance, where the you could hardly see anyone, were some of my friends. And I went, how, what fun will that be to sit at a table and you won't be able to talk with anyone except the people right around you? And the Lord will probably be way up at that end of the table and I'll be way down at that end of the table. And I just couldn't understand how that could be any fun at all. But you see, John's not talking here about a literal table or a literal wedding feast. This is a symbol of the joy and the camaraderie and the fun and excitement of being together around a table. I don't know about you all, but I just love to eat. I'd rather eat than anything I know. And it's more fun to eat with someone that you love. Isn't that great? That's why the Lord said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and eat with you. He knows what our hearts long for. And uh, that's the picture that that is evoked by these symbols. Not a literal table set with silverware and and, uh, plates and glasses and food, but rather an idea of eternity, enjoying one another's presence and fellowshipping with, with one another and free from the wear and tear and strain of the pressure of the world and the flesh and the devil upon us. And that's coming. He meant it when he said he was coming back. And one of these days he'll appear and we'll see him coming and it will be just like our wedding day. Remember what that was like? And how you anticipated it and thought about it and uh, kept that in your mind and how that uh, colored your perspective on things and the way you thought, what you did. And then finally that great day came that you'd look forward to for months and months and you entered into a union with the person that that you love. Now that's what he's trying to trying to describe and when when we read these promises sprinkled throughout the New Testament it's probably appropriate to hum the wedding march to yourself or Paul Stuckey's uh, wedding song or I'll be with you in apple blossom time I'll be with you to change your name to mine or whatever because that's that's what it, that's what it's intending to to symbolize. You see that sort of feel for the thing. Now as always, the bride is adorned beautifully, and uh, this—it's always important for the bride to look her best. Carolyn still keeps her wedding dress after 25 years. It's all moldy and and falling apart, and the flowers are brown and it looks awful. But she still got it in a the box there, and that's always what you look at when you when the bride comes down the down the aisle. You look at her wedding dress. And the interesting thing is that's the way she's described here, and that's the only way she's described. Nothing is said about her face or her figure. Nothing is said about her intelligence or her monetary worth. The only thing that's said about her is that her adornment is beautiful. He says in verse 7, Let's rejoice, or the great multitude says in verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints the uh, assembled crowd knows that the bride has been purchased through the suffering love of the groom and uh, now he sees uh, the crowd sees the bride approaching She has made herself ready for the groom and she's clothed in righteous acts. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, but it certainly strikes me as strange that her apparel would be righteous acts and that's what renders her right for the groom. That sounds contrary to so much of what we know of the New Testament because normally our adornment Our robes, or wherever that symbol is used, refer to justification, imputed righteousness, the righteousness that God gives to us. He gives that to us like a robe to put on. But here it's the righteous deeds of the saints, their actions, what they do, that matters. That's how she prepares herself to meet the groom. She's done something. She's done righteousness. And it doesn't seem right. Unless we understand that It's God's plan to recreate in us a new heart. And the mark of someone who loves the Lamb is that his character is like that of the Lamb. It's not that having become a Christian, I now decide that I'm going to uh, change my life. That's the way a lot of people envision the Christian life. Now I'm a Christian. I've committed my life to Jesus Christ as Lord. Now I'm going to try harder to do better, I'm going to clean up my act. No, not at all. Because if you'll notice, the righteous acts are given to her. Clearly says that. She's adorned in a gown that's given to her. It's rather that the Lord Jesus has worked His magic upon her heart and changed her desires and inclinations and given her the will and the desire to do His will. That's the mark of a Christian. It's not one who's tried harder, but regeneration is a real thing. Something happens to our heart. Well, all of a sudden we hunger and thirst after righteousness, not because we've geared up our will to do so, but God is working on us to accomplish that end. Now, it seems to me that the mark then of real involvement with the Lamb is that our lives will be different different from the world around us. We talked a bit about that last week. Our character will be different. And the marks are not always the visible, outward, obvious marks of change, but they are almost always those quiet, unseen actions. Those are the things that are the the tip-off. Those are the things that let us know that something real has happened. As James puts it, true religion is to visit the sick and the fatherless and widows. Uh, that is, doing those things that no one sees. Doing them out of ha- a heart of love for the Lord, not because you want to gain some some appreciation or, or some uh, position, uh, or you want praise, or you want someone to notice you, but simply because you love the Lord and you want to serve. And you give yourself... In, in unseen acts of love to others. That's always the mark. James says, if someone comes to your house and uh, they're hungry and thirsty and uh, you say, be warmed and filled and you don't give them those things that are needful for the body, how can you say that the love of Christ dwells in you? I remember a Peanuts cartoon strip once that showed Snoopy... Uh, sitting out beside his uh, doghouse with snow on his head. And there was snow all over the ground. And Lucy and Charlie Brown were looking at uh, Snoopy, and Charlie Brown had this miserable look on his face. He felt so sorry for his dog. And Lucy says to the dog, Snoopy, be warmed and filled. And she turns around and goes in the house and fixes herself a cup of cocoa. And here's Snoopy out in the cold, shivering. Well, Charlie Schultz is a Christian, and he's he's just reflecting the the truth that you find in James. How can we say that that the love of Christ or love for Christ dwells in us unless we we do something tangible and practical for people around us? That's the real mark. You know, we we all like to be up front. We want people to see us, and we want our deeds of righteousness to be known and acclaimed. We all want that, but the Lord says that's not the test. The real test is what do you do when no one sees you? What do you think when no one knows what's going on in your mind? What sort of actions do you carry out when when there's no one there to applaud or appreciate what you do? And you do these things simply out of a a sense of love for the Lord, no other motivation. The Lord said in the last day, there will be a division of all humanity into into two units. There will be goats and there will be sheep. Then the sheep will say, why are we sheep? And the Lord will say, well, in that you visited the those in prison and you fed those that were hungry and you gave a cup of cold water in my name to someone in need, you did it to me. See, that's the mark. Therefore, we ought to look at the church not as a place to be served, but as a place to serve. When we come here on, on Sunday morning and gather our thinking ought not to be, what will I get out of this meeting? But rather, what can I give? And uh, through the week, we ought to be looking for ways to express our love and encouragement for each other in practical ways. To bake a cake for, or a pie, piece of pie for someone who's, who's sick. Or uh, as someone this past week did for someone I know. They uh, needed to get away for a couple of days and they offered to take their children. Or as one of our young men did for Steve, he's going to uh, India, as you know, for the month of September, and he volunteered to take care of his lawn so Holly wouldn't have to do that while Steve is gone. And it's those practical expressions of love that really demonstrate that we belong to the Lamb. Now, again, not one of us can, can do that sort of thing apart from the activity of God in us. Those things are simply the mark of a will that's submitted to Christ's Lordship. And there are indications that He is is indeed at at work in us. But if we fully understand what it means to make Christ Lord, then we'll make ourselves available to Him to do these things through us. As as the Lord put it in, in John 15, if you abide in Me, and I in you, you'll produce much fruit. It's Him at work in us that will make the difference. Now, Again, this is a great paradox. And we can't explain how this works. To what extent do I work? Do I choose? Do I decide that I'm going to bake a pie or act in a loving way? We have to choose. We have to will to do it. But at the same time, it's God who's working in us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And one of the best illustrations I know of this principle is the story of Abraham. Abraham was told by God that he would be a blessing to the world. God said, uh, called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, brought him over into uh, the, the land of promise, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to use you to to bring blessing to the nations. Through you the whole world will be blessed. And then God put Abraham to sleep and signed the contract. The, uh, the uh, action that the Lord takes in cutting the animals apart, passing between them is, is taken right out of ancient Near Eastern legal law. That's the way they ratified a contract. And uh, it would be like today going down to a stationer's and getting a standard form, filling it out, and having the Lord alone sign it. And then he handed it to Abraham. The point of it all was that the covenant, the promise to Abraham, was unconditional. God would do it. Abraham didn't even get the sign on the dotted line. God was the was the only one who, who signed on the contract. He would do it. But a bit later, the Lord uh, told Abraham to take his son Isaac to Mount Moriah and offer him up as a sacrifice. And Abraham, though he did not understand and did not want to do it because that was the son of promise, did it. He obeyed and he went to Mount Moriah, and he was he was willing to plunge that knife into his son's chest. One of the Dutch masters, uh, in portraying the scene, shows. Abraham ready to, to kill his son and the hand of the angel is reaching out of the sky above and clasped on his wrist and, and Abraham's arm, the muscles in his arm are knotted and strained because his, he was committed. He was going to put that son to death and the angel is struggling with him to keep him from doing so. And then, as you know, the son is spared and on the way back down the mountain the Lord said to Abraham, because you have done this, I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. And through you, I will bring blessing to the whole world. And my question is now, wait a minute. Who's responsible for this covenant? God said he is. It's unconditional. But here, it's conditioned upon Abraham's obedience. And the only way I can put all of that together is to see that it is unconditional. It is up to God. It all depends upon him. And yet, I must obey. But God will see to it that I obey. He will not give up. He will go to work in my life and in yours to fulfill every dream and desire of our hearts. What do we have to do? Just respond to the Lamb. To say, Lord, here I am. Take me. Use me. I'm counting on you to make me what, what I know I should be. And when the marriage takes place and we stand before the Lord as His bride, we will say, He did it. It's all because of Him. That's why the songwriter uh, stated it in in that way. The, The bride eyes, not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but at my King of grace. Not at the crown He giveth, but on His pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. And that's why this great celestial chorus breaks out into hallelujahs, because it all depends upon Him. I must cooperate. I must activate my will. I must choose. But He's committed to me, and it all depends upon Him. So I can rest rest and trust and believe that He who has begun a good work in me will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Perhaps you've never made that commitment. You've never had or taken the opportunity to make Christ Lord in your life. He, um, he loves you, and He wants to be your, your groom, your husband. And uh, as Isaiah put it to Israel, Israel, he says, you're like a, a lonely woman longing after fulfillment and healing and help. And the Lord, he says, is your husband. The Lord wants to be that for you to fulfill you and satisfy you, give you what you long for that you're trying to find now from some other source. All you have to do is accept his uh, invitation. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. And he'll come into your life and he'll eat and drink with you and satisfy you fully. You can do that as we pray together. Father, we thank you for coming into the world to love us and give yourself for us. And we, like this great heavenly crowd, can only offer up praise at the cost of your love for us. And we thank you for it. And we thank you for your life that's available to us now, that makes everything else count, that makes life matter, that gives meaning and purpose substance and strength to our life. We want you to be our Lord, to rule and reign and, and and give us what we know we need for life. And we thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.